Greetings, my fellow warriors. Once again, as always, thank you for joining me. Today, I would like to share with you some of my experience as a reservist in the British Army. I often mention my military experience, and I think it went a long way to shaping who I am today. And I know some of you are interested to hear more about it. So today, please allow me to share with you some of my own experience training with one of the greatest armed forces on the face of the earth. My name is Lewis, and you are listening to Budo, The Martial Way. First of all, let me give you a little further information about the British Army. I know many of you listening are American. The structure of our military forces are a little different to the American Army, so please allow me to explain. When I joined the Army, I joined what was then called the TA, or Territorial Army. I believe it was called this as the original idea was that it would be a sort of home defense force to repel any invading army, much like the Home Guard in Dad's Army. But that's not really how it operates anymore. I joined the Royal Anglian Regiment. The Royal Anglian Regiment is an infantry regiment. For those of you who are unaware, the definition of infantry is that of soldiers who are trained to fight on foot. You see, the army is really like a huge company. It has a lot of different divisions and branches. We need people to cook, logistics to transport and deliver things, mechanics to fix vehicles. There's about every kind of job you can think of. Well, the infantry are soldiers, as pure to fighting soldiers as you can think of. Usually, when you watch a war movie, you're watching the infantry. Those are the guys who do the actual fighting, running around, kicking in doors, throwing grenades around. To quote the United States Marine Corps, the mission of the Marine Corps Rifle Squad is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver, or to repel the enemy assault by fire and close combat. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't want to join the army to fix cars or deliver documents. I wanted to fight. So, the Royal Anglian Regiment has three battalions. The first two battalions are regular units, the Vikings and the Poachers. The third battalion is a reserve unit, the Steelbacks. Now, what happens is, during armed conflicts, the third battalion itself is never actually deployed. The first and second battalions take turns rotating out on deployment, and when they go, soldiers from the third battalion are attached to to that unit. So, for instance, when we were fighting in Afghanistan, the 1st Battalion, the Vikings, would prepare for deployment, and members of the 3rd Battalion would be attached to them for the duration of their mobilization. So, during that tour of Afghanistan, the reserve soldiers wouldn't actually be reserve soldiers any longer. For preparation and deployment of that tour, they would be full-time regular soldiers. I was never deployed. I was preparing for the final tour of Afghanistan as we were in the process of pulling out of the country. They weren't sure how many people they would need and the number kept changing and in the end I didn't get to go. I was very disappointed as that was really going to be my only opportunity to get deployed. Maybe that's naivety on my part. I should really consider it a good thing that I didn't have to go to war. But you know, my sister's husband told me he understood how I felt. He's a Canadian firefighter and he explained that while, of course, he never wants anyone's house to be on fire, he does want to use his training. I think anyone who pushes themselves so hard to prepare for any specific task wants to test themselves under pressure and see if they really have what it takes. It's only natural. So while, unfortunately, I didn't get to see the sunny sights of Afghanistan, I was fortunate enough, however, to spend three years training with 3rd Battalion, Royal Anglian Regiment, which of all the reserve forces in the entire British Army is the most deployed reserve battalion. So the majority of the soldiers I was training with had seen action in either Iraq, Afghanistan or both. Why did I join the army? What was my motivation for doing such a thing? 
Well, it's really the same reason that's motivated me to do everything I have in my adult life. The martial arts I've practiced, the exercise I do, the meditation, the training, the study. It's all about becoming an independent, capable, self-reliant individual. I wanted to have certain knowledge, acquire a certain set of skills, to have that experience and the training. I wanted to be a soldier, not in name, not in appearance, but deep within myself. I wanted to have the spirit, the character, the discipline, all of the qualities and characteristics that make a soldier. When I was younger, when I would watch a movie or see something on TV with soldiers, you know how you often see some disaster movie or a war film or an inv alien invasion or whatever it is? You see civilians running around screaming, totally helpless, completely incapable of doing anything. Then you see the army turn up. The soldiers arrive to save the day, capable, confident, brave, fit and able. When I saw those images, my mindset wasn't in any kind of altruistic thought of wanting to save the helpless people. But when I imagined myself in any of those scenarios, I could not associate myself with those useless civilians. I always thought of myself as a soldier. I looked at them and thought, I could do that. But of course, at that time, no matter my mindset, I still had the knowledge and experience of a civilian. I was a civilian and I wanted to be a soldier. And the only way to do that, the only way to become that person to join the Brotherhood was to join the army. My initial training consisted of five weeks basic training at Redford Barracks up in Edinburgh, Scotland. This initial training is common to all soldiers, regardless of cap badge or trade. First and foremost, if you're in the army, you need to have a basic level of fundamental training, universal to everyone in the armed forces. If I remember correctly, there were five platoons in my course. Each platoon was entirely independent and we didn't really interact with any of the other platoons, but we all went through the training process at the same time, start to finish. The interesting thing is that all of the platoons were a colorful mix of different regiments and various outfits. You had mechanics, air corps, logistics, all sorts throughout each platoon. But my platoon was entirely infantry. We had men from different regiments, but everyone in my platoon was infantry. So we considered ourselves above the other platoons, and our training staff held us to a higher standard than the other platoons. Within the army, there are three annual tests you need to pass at minimum. A mile and a half run, an eight mile tab, and a shooting test. I'm not sure if passing the shooting test is infantry only, but the standards for the run and the tab are different depending on your branch in the army. And our staff during basic training always held us to a much higher standard than the others because we were infantry. And after basic, we would be going to Catterick for trade training. More on that later. So to give you a bit more info on those tests I mentioned, the mile and a half run, that's 2.4k, must be completed in 10 minutes and 30 seconds, which isn't really difficult, but that's an absolute cutoff. Most people should be passing that well under 10 minutes. The best time I ever clocked was 8.58, which is actually low enough to qualify for special forces like paras or Royal Marines. But if you join signals or logistics or any of that, the maximum time is much longer. Then there's the eight mile TAB, almost 13 kilometers. TAB stands for Tactical Advance to Battle. The mile and a half run is done in shorts and t-shirts with trainers, individual best effort. You go as fast as you can. But the TAB is done in full battle gear, boots, webbing, rifle, and weight on your back. For infantry, it's 25 kilograms total. 20 kilograms plus a five kilogram rifle. For combat support arms like engineers and artillery, it's 20 kilograms total. And for combat service support arms like medical and logistics, it's 15 kilograms. The eight mile tab is to be completed in two hours and includes on-road and off-road segments to the march and is completed together as a unit. 
The shooting test requires you to hit a certain amount of targets within a given time limit at ranges from 100 to 300 meters in various positions. Standing at 100, kneeling and supported at 200, down to prone at 300. So what was it like doing basic training in Scotland? It was good. I have a lot of fond memories of that course. Of course, it was tough, tiring, a lot of hard work, but it was also a great experience. Our training staff were recently back from Afghanistan and under no illusions that at least some of us in the platoon would inevitably find our way out there. So they took our training extremely seriously and did everything they could to prepare us for war. I think the most challenging part of it for me was being out in the field in freezing cold at night and getting so little sleep. We did the training in summer, but even during summer, Scottish nights are wet and cold. And as we were often drenched in rain and our own sweat, when it came to night, the temperature would plummet and we'd start getting real cold. When we were in the field at night, we would have to do stag, which is basically guard duty. They'd allow us maybe about four, sometimes just three hours of sleep max. But I remember times when I'd be able to get about one hour of sleep, then have to do stag for an hour, and then get another one hour of sleep before having to stand to at sunrise. Then, considering we'd have full days of almost constant activity before and after that night, and sometimes we'd have to do consecutive nights like that, it was not easy. A lot of people couldn't hack it. People quit. And hell, I'd be lying if I told you I didn't think about it. Oh man, let me tell you. When you're lying there with a rifle at 3am, freezing cold, dead tired, staring out from your position into the darkness, doing everything you can to stay awake so the staff don't catch you sleeping on duty, and they do check. Man, is it tough. You've got a lot of time to sit there and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Is this what I want to do? This is not fun. I want to go home. I want to be warm. I want to be clean. I want to sleep. But damn, training like that makes you appreciate the simple things in life. You see, I have a friend of mine who lives up in the north of England. He lives in Newcastle. And after my training, I was going to go and spend a couple of days at his place. During those dark times when I was really struggling with a lot of time to think to myself... One thought that really pulled me through was the thought of sitting on his living room floor eating a curry. That's it. That is the entirety of what I wanted in life. You see, the thing is, if I'm sat on his living room floor, that means I'm clean. I've had a shower. I'm wearing clean clothes. I'm inside in the warm and dry. And his floor, even though he just had a hardwood floor, that was at least flat and dry. And I could sit on it comfortably eating a nice curry. That was the dream that pulled me through some of the hardest times. But the hardest time, the absolute worst experience I had was the day after I caught DNV. DNV stands for diarrhea, nausea and vomiting. I didn't have diarrhea, but one night I woke up and I had to rush to the toilets before I started spewing my guts up. I don't know why I was so sick, but it's not uncommon to get sick like this. Real hard, but often for a real short period during training. All these people crammed together, stressing their bodies to the limits every day, out in the cold, the mud, getting little sleep and basically no time to recover. People get sick. Now, no one suspected me of faking it, because the following day, after the night I destroyed one of the toilets with my vomit, that was the first day we were going on the range and start firing the rifles. So, of course, everyone was excited for that, and I was gutted to miss it. That day, the day I was sick, I vomited a few more times in the morning, but all day, I swear to God, the entire day... All I ate was one slice of buttered toast. One slice of buttered toast throughout the entire day. That and drinking electrolyte powder one of the medics gave me. Now the next day, I felt better, so I geared myself up and got back to work. Now, this is where things got bad. The next day, we had some special guests join us for PT. 
That day, we were joined by three soldiers from the SAS. Yeah, that's right. That SAS. Beige berets and everything. For those of you who know absolutely nothing about the military, the SAS is the British Army's Special Air Service. These guys are among the absolute pinnacle of global special forces. It really doesn't get any better than that. They're regarded almost like mythical creatures within the army. The British Army, as I imagine is the same for most military forces around the world, has a lot of interregimental rivalry. Everyone thinks they're the best and always shit talks the other cat badges, but no one speaks ill of the sass. So when we came back from the ranges and head out onto the parade square to start PT, the instructors were just bringing back one of the other platoons from their exercise. Now, often, when a platoon goes out for a loaded march, a military ambulance follows behind to pick up people who drop out and can't hack it. When this platoon came back from their PT with the SAS, I could see more than one person in the back of the ambulance, and another two people collapsed after forming up on the square. So, of course, the men in my platoon were starting to get a little bit uneasy. We knew we were about to get beasted by these guys. But how do you think I feel? Don't forget, the day before, I'd spent all day vomiting my guts up. I'd had next to nothing to eat and had spent basically the entire day on a liquid diet trying to replenish the electrolytes I'd lost from my body. Now, I'm about to get destroyed on a forced march by these elite special forces soldiers. But you know what? I fucking did it. I did not quit. They marched us way out into these woods, had us going up and down these hills, running around these circuits, scaling these hills so steep we were basically climbing up them. It was savage. And they didn't wait for people to catch up. If you couldn't keep the pace, you got picked up by the ambulance. I remember clearly when we were approaching the barracks, almost back home, I started breathing really strangely. I've never done anything like it before or since. I had this really weird shuddering, gasping breath. I honestly thought I might pass out. A couple of the guys next to me were asking if I was all right, but all I could do was nod. I couldn't even, I physically couldn't even answer them. But I made it back, we formed up, and we were dismissed. After we were dismissed, I walked back inside the building. I turned a corner down a quiet hallway with no one in it. And you know what I did? I cried. I honestly cried. Due to the unique condition I was in at the time, I suffered in a very particular way that I have never experienced at any other time in my life. And I almost didn't make it to the end, but I did. And I can't explain why I cried. I couldn't tell you if it was from how awful I felt or the relief of surviving it. I can't pin it down on any one thing specifically. But from the accumulation of everything, I just needed a moment to collapse in a corner and recover. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. To give you one other interesting story from Redford Barracks I think you might enjoy. There was a day, I think it was on the weekend of the third week. It was the first day in which we were given the evening off and allowed off base. We were allowed to put our civvies back on and go into town. But we had very specific orders to be back by midnight or God help us if we miss that curfew. So we all got taxis into town. And because we had to be back so early, as you can imagine, everyone was getting absolutely smashed by 9pm. So we had a good time in town. It was nice to re-enter the world for a moment and not be in fear of staff looking over our shoulder all the time. I'm pretty sure everyone in my platoon made it back before curfew. But once we got back, people were kind of hanging around, chatting. No one was any real rush to go to bed. Outside of the smoking area, there was a pretty big group of people, a lot from my platoon, Sicily platoon, and I guess what you could call from our rival platoon, Cambrai platoon. There was only about eight or so people from my platoon, but there was almost the whole of Cambrai platoon. It started out all right. It was nice to speak with some people from a different platoon, interact with some new faces. But as you can probably guess, with a bunch of squaddies liquored up, things started to get a little spicy. Light-hearted banter starts to get personal and egos got inflated. 
I think the guys from Cambrai Platoon were maybe getting a little bit brave because they outnumbered us so much. Well, I don't know exactly what kicked it off, but what I do remember is that people started shoving and fists started flying. Of course, in a situation like that, you don't ask questions, you just go to war. So I pushed this guy away from one of my mates and punched a couple of guys in the head. It wasn't like any big, vicious knockout punches, just a little bop in the side of the head. They were all right. But you know what was really funny is that most of their platoons scattered. We were easily outnumbered, like three to one, but we fought them off. The fight didn't last long. I think a couple of people got a little bloodied up, but it wasn't anything serious. But as people dispersed, we quickly gathered ourselves and ran back to our bunk rooms. As we made it back upstairs, we could hear staff shouting and suddenly there's sergeants prowling around outside looking for people. So we all dived into our bunks, fully clothed, some people bleeding. We all got our heads down and laid still as corpses. A minute or two later, the staff come into our bunk room and walk up and down the room. You know that bit near the start of Lord of the Rings where they're in the woods and that Nazgul almost finds Frodo and the others? They're hiding under that tree and the ring the ring wraiths is right above them looking for them. That is how I felt laying in that bed, not moving, not breathing, waiting for the danger to pass. Well, they did leave and eventually we were free to sort ourselves out and go to sleep. The next day, we were all terrified. We thought we were going to get in so much trouble. We formed up for morning parade looking our absolute best. Stood straight, complete silence on our very best behavior. When the corporal arrived, we all expected to get absolutely destroyed. But when he arrived, he didn't say anything. For the longest time, he was just writing in his file, checking papers, not saying a word. Eventually, he says quietly, I heard there was a fight last night, to which someone at the front replies, I, Corporal. Then there's a pause, and the Corporal asks, Did you win? Again, the response, I, Corporal. To which the Corporal says nothing. He just nods once and walks off. None of us said a word, and no one moved. But I'm pretty sure I could see out the corner of my eye other people were smiling ear to ear just as me. No punishment, no reprimand. He only wanted to know if we won. That's infantry mentality. So what's required to join the army? Well, first off, there's the basic level of fitness. That's probably the main thing everyone talks about when they first start looking at joining the armed forces. But to be honest, you shouldn't even really worry about that. The minimum required is just that, a minimum. And if you only just scrape by with the minimum level of fitness required, trust me, you are going to suffer badly during your time in the army. You should well exceed any minimum fitness required if you're serious about joining the army, especially if you plan on seeing combat. This isn't a fucking game. It's not only your life on the line, but the lives of the men around you. And during training, it's hard enough as it is. You don't need to add complete physical exhaustion and fatigue to your list of problems. I think the main thing you really need to join the army is the right mindset, which could be said about anything in life. Getting shouted at, treated like dirt, forced to do a lot of difficult things by some heartless, unforgiving people is fine. You can deal with that. But being cold, hungry, absolutely filthy and more tired than you've probably ever been in your life and still having to operate and follow orders, that requires a certain mindset. You need to really want it, to want to be there. Because when you're at your absolute worst, your lowest, no one's going to hold your hand. There won't be anyone to pat you on the back and tell you it's going to be okay. It's just you. The army will help to build discipline within you, of course, but if you've listened to episode 14 of my podcast, you should know that discipline can only exist within yourself. Motivation is external and discipline is internal. It is something you can build and develop, but we all have a certain amount of it within us at any given time. And for a lot of people, the level of discipline required to be a member of the armed forces exceeds their own personal reserves. Roughly a third of the platoon didn't make it to the passing out parade. I remember hearing people say, it's not what I expected, which is strange to me because it, it's exactly what I expected. 
but it would seem people have some very unrealistic expectations as to what's involved with being a soldier. I couldn't tell you exactly what those people were thinking, you'd have to ask them. But what I can tell you is that I've seen that kind of behavior before. As a martial artist, you see it in the gym too. You get these tough guys, wannabes, who think they're hard. And maybe they were. Maybe they were in school. They were the tough kids everyone was afraid of. They come to the gym wanting to learn how to fight. But in their minds, they're only thinking about the end results. They're only thinking about sparring and knocking other people out. They always fall to pieces during the warm-up, any cardio or conditioning exercises. During the actual work required to become a martial artist, they can't hack it. They don't want to put in the work, so they quit. And I think it's the same in the army. They just want to wear a uniform and shoot some guns. They don't want to quick march eight miles carrying 25 kilograms. They don't want to polish their boots, and they certainly don't like getting shouted at. Just a bunch of pretenders. Some people are clueless. After passing out of basic training, you then go on to trade training, where each branch of the army will pursue their own specific specialization. Being a part of the infantry, it was largely more of the same, but harder and in more depth. The first two weeks of infantry training takes place at Catterick, the spiritual home of the British infantry. These two weeks were a little tough. They really push you. Some of the people I spoke to in my platoon, they had done basic training at different times and places, and they said that Catterick was more severe than anything they had experienced before. But for me, it was really more of the same, which really made me appreciate the staff I had for my basic training even more, because it became clear that they really did push us a lot harder in preparation for everything we would be facing later. As I said before, roughly a third of the men in my platoon didn't make it through basic, and again, another third dropped out during infantry training, even after making it that far. So from my own experience, not including those who fail selection, to make it into the infantry, even as a reservist, has about a 44% pass rate. Which I guess is a good thing. We should maintain high standards for our armed forces. Here's a story you might find funny. If you know anything about military training, you may have heard of the gas chamber. So, in the British Army, we have CBRN training, which stands for Chemical, Biological, Radiological and Nuclear. This training involves the use of full body overalls and gas masks. To ensure you know how to use a gas mask correctly and aren't just going through the motions, they put you in a sealed room and fill it with CS gas. CS gas is a type of very strong tear gas. When you're in this room, they literally fill it with so much gas that it is so thick in the air you cannot see the wall on the other side of the room. It is ridiculous. Once it's filled with gas, you have to do a bunch of drills, including taking your mask off to eat and drink, clean your face and reapply the mask, clearing it of any gas without messing up and inhaling any CS. But even if you do everything right, which you should, even if you perform all the drills correctly, the very last thing they have you do is one at a time, you approach the door, and before they let you leave, you have to remove your mask, open your eyes, and recite your name, rank, and number. I got about halfway through my name before I was coughing and spluttering, dancing all over the place, trying not to touch my eyes and rub it in any deeper. It is absolutely horrible but it is also hilarious seeing people freak out coughing their lungs up panicking like they've just submerged their head in an aerosol form of hot sauce the last time i did it because this is part of your annual training they don't always make you open your eyes and talk like that but cbrn training is something you have to do every year but the last time i did it after we came out one of the officers grabbed a crate of beer out of the truck and he proposed a competition for volunteers only. He said that we'll go back into the chamber, we'll take our masks off, and we can leave whenever we want. But the last man standing gets the crate. Well, obviously, me being me, I volunteered for that straight away. I knew I wasn't going to win. I knew I had no chance. <laughs> but there was no way I was going to sit on the sidelines for this fun and games. So we went back in topped it up with even more CS, you could barely see a thing through the smoke, and we all took our masks off. 
Obviously, I held my breath for as long as I could. And you know what? In CS gas, if you keep your eyes closed and don't breathe in, it's absolutely fine. You can't feel a thing. But eventually, I got to the point where I feel the need to breathe. And being the genius that I am, I start to think to myself, it doesn't really feel that bad. Maybe if I just take a little sip, just a tiny little slow breath in, maybe it'll be all right. Well, as you can probably guess, it was not all right. As soon as I breathed in the tiniest bit of air, it was absolute death. And that just opened the floodgates for me to gasp in more air. And then from there, I was gone. I don't know how much longer I stayed in the room, but it wasn't long. But the amazing thing, the guy who won, he wasn't some big, tough, strong guy, not some experienced veteran. It was this young, skinny lad, really tall and built like a rake, super quiet. He looked like a complete pushover, but he was the last man to come out. So everyone treated him like an absolute hero. His reputation swelled that day. Good fun. Speaking of good fun... Let me tell you about bayonet training. Bayonet training is the absolute very last thing you do in training. We did it at the end of basic training, but it really wasn't anything to write home about. But bayonet training at the end of infantry training is something else. It's a, it's like a rite of passage. So the day before our final day of training, I remember we were marched back to our bunkhouse and as we stood outside, the corporal casually said something like, yeah, there's not much to do tomorrow, just mostly admin work, so you can have a bit of a lion tomorrow. Take it easy. Some people in the platoon were like, oh, that's nice, that sounds good. But some of us were not so easily fooled. I had a sly grin on my face. I thought to myself, all right, okay, sure, yeah, we'll have a lion. Yeah, right. The first time you've ever given us that luxury. I can't remember what time we used to get up in the morning. I think we had to be on parade by like 5 a.m. or something. So we'd normally get out of bed at like 4.30. Well, that next day at 4.30 a.m., one of the corporals kicks the fucking door in. I mean, he boots that door in. I swear the thing almost came off the hinges. And he starts screaming at us, get up, get out of those beds, get on your feet. I saw him grab the bed of the guy closest to the door and flip him over. Everyone else is leaping or falling out of bed. There's corporals stomping up and down the rooms, wearing their webbing, rifle in hand, camcreen on their face, tooled up looking like they're ready for war. They tell us we've got 10 minutes to get ourselves washed and shaved, dressed, geared up and out on the parade square. I go into the head and I have the fastest shave of my entire life. I grab my gear and I leg it out onto the parade square. What continues from that point is about four hours of the worst beasting I have ever experienced in the army. Non-stop savagery. They had us running up and down the parade square just to get us started. Then they run us out across the base to the assault course. They have us crawling through this wet mud, which is still frosted with ice it's so early in the morning. We had to crawl through this one thorn bush that was so thick and sharp, the guys on the front came out covered in blood. Thanks to their sacrifice, the guys behind them had a slightly wider passage to crawl through and didn't get so badly sliced up. It was just hours of relentless screaming and torture. At the end, we were eventually formed up in the bayonet field. Oh, one last thing they had us do before we actually fix bayonets and start stabbing things. The sergeant pointed out this course around the field. There were three signs around the field. And what he told us to do, or should I say what he screamed at us to do, was to run to each one and read it before forming up back on the field. So we take off, running as fast as we can, and when I get to the first sign, what does it say? I can't remember. I'm not telling you that I can't remember what the sign says. I'm telling you the words on the sign were, I can't remember. That's what was written on the sign. So then we run to the next one, and the sign reads, I don't know. And then as we run to the third sign, there's this big, 
pond of brown, muddy, stagnant, chest-high water we have to run through. And as we're running through it, one of the corporals shouts, Grenade! And whenever one of the staff shouts grenade, we have to drop to the deck and start crawling. So we have to dive down in this putrid water and submerge ourselves in this utter filth before we crawl out the other side and start running again. And then once we get to the last sign, what does it say? Can we go again? So then we get back to the field, we form up, and I'm sure you can guess what happens now. The sergeant gets in someone's face and calmly asks him what the first sign said. I can't remember, he replies. So then the sergeant explodes. You can't remember, you stupid arsehole. I gave you one task. Get back out there and read it again. So the whole platoon goes round again and again and again. And just when you think it's about to end, you go again. Now, the reason we do this, from what I understand and from what I've been told, is that during war, during actual conflict, Generally speaking, if you need to fix bayonets, something has gone incredibly wrong. I read about how the American army never fixes bayonets anymore. That's just something they don't really do. But if you read up about the British army in Afghanistan, there are actually quite a few instances in which they did give the order to fix bayonets. If you receive the order to fix bayonets, it usually means you're about to be overrun. You are on your last line of defense. So the reason we get absolutely beasted like this is to try and simulate those circumstances. Because in battle, if you're so beaten down, so crushed that you're about to be overrun, the battle is probably a living nightmare. You may have dead comrades next to you. You may be wounded yourself. You're probably filthy, tired, battle fatigued, confused, scared. Shit is going down in a big way like you've never experienced in your life. And whether you're attacking or defending, there's a good chance you're about to come within arm's reach of the enemy. So in bayonet training, they try to break you down as much as possible. And then in ranks, you fix bayonets and screaming war cries, you march toward a series of standing and lying dummies and stab the fuck out of them with your bayonets. I remember once we'd finished, we were stood in the field, formed up. And it's like our whole platoon was one big smoke machine because we were all so wet, so muddy, but also so hot that in the morning sun, steam was billowing up off us into the sky like we were on fire. I remember that quite clearly. And once we'd finished, at the first moment we had to ourselves, I remember the relief, the sense of accomplishment, the pride. I knew that was it. We'd done it. We'd passed. We were infantry. I know I was just a reservist, not a regular squaddy, and I was never deployed overseas, so I can't really call myself a real soldier. But I'm trained. I earned my beret. I know my experience and why I achieved. Where I succeeded in trials, a lot of other people failed and quit. So I have my own pride, and at the very least, I know I'm not a civilian. I did actually have two periods in which I trained with the regs. As I mentioned earlier, when the British Army reservists are deployed overseas, they are attached to a regular full-time unit for the length of their deployment. Well, toward the end of the Afghan war, I volunteered for the final tour of Afghanistan, Op Herrick 16. I wasn't the only one who volunteered. Absolutely everyone wanted to go as the war was winding down and this was going to be people's last chance to see the sandy sights of the Middle East. So for a week, we joined up with 1st Battalion to undergo some pre-deployment training. There must have been about 300 of us from 3rd Battalion doing that training. And the whole time, officers were giving us all kinds of mixed messages about who was and wasn't going to go. Because the coalition forces were in the process of withdrawing from Afghanistan, no one really knew what kind of size force was going to be needed. Well, long story short, six people got to go. Six people from 3rd Battalion. Gutted. Anyway, that's not really the point of why I brought that up. The point is, that was my first experience training with the regs. And for a lot of these guys, that was their first experience with the reservists. At first, unsurprisingly, there was a divide between the regular soldiers and the reservists. There's a lot of rivalry within the army, especially amongst infantry. And you know what? If I was a reg, I'd look down on reservists too. So I don't hold it against them. 
But that divide was pretty quickly bridged as we were all working and training together. You get chatting and at the end of the day, we're all a bunch of lads going at it. And we proved we could hold our own as well. I remember quite early on, there was an exercise we were doing. There was this rough, marshy ground we had to cross for about 200 meters that ended in a river. On this side of the river was a dummy, and on the other side were targets that would pop up and down. So we had to fire and maneuver up to the dummy, grab it, and then fall back whilst hitting these targets. Well, we were all taking turns doing it, and in the end, it was a reserve unit that did it in the fastest time while also hitting the most targets. And that surprised some people. We also did a CFT while we were there, the 8-mile tab with the 25 kilograms I told you about before. All of us reservists were expecting the regs to be these super soldier killing machines that would smash it out no problem. But you know what? They really weren't any different from the rest of us. Some of the regs were struggling, I'll tell you. So I think it kind of went both ways. The regs were expecting us to be a bunch of useless morons, and we weren't. And we were all expecting them to be these amazing super soldiers, and they weren't. One of the things that was super obvious, a very clear difference between the regs and the reservists, is the average age. A lot of regs, dare I say most, join the army straight out of school. You get so many 18, 19, 20-year-old lads, honestly so young, they join the army straight out of school, never had any other job, never lived their own life, not married, no kids. They basically trade teachers for sergeants and pens for rifles. Whereas with the reservists, you get guys who are way, way older. In the reserves, you've got guys who are self-employed, small business owners, fathers, married men, responsible adults. So these guys are a lot more mature. They have a lot more life experience. They don't need to be corralled like a bunch of unruly children quite so much. And you know what? Once we started mixing with the regs more, once we started chatting and getting more friendly, I was very surprised to find out how many of them wanted out. Honestly, I swear, so many of these guys wanted to leave, but they'd signed up for three-year terms and the only way they could leave before their due was to pay their way out. Whereas with the reserves, you can leave anytime you want. We're there totally voluntarily. We chose to be there. And a lot of the regs, they couldn't understand that. Some of them hated it. Not everyone, of course, but some of those regular soldiers I spoke to were real young lads who'd simply had enough whereas everyone in the 3rd Battalion was there by choice. The second time I was attached to the regs was when I went to Croatia for a two-week training exercise. That was a fantastic experience. At that time, Croatia had just joined the EU, so the Royal Anglian Regiment was the first NATO force to go out and train with the Croatian army, which was really great. I enjoyed that a lot. I traded a British Army hat for one of the Croatian army caps, got that in a box of things back home in England, I could tell you some funny stories about that adventure, but you know what? This has already gone on long enough for one day, so I'm going to start wrapping it up. One last story I do want to tell you, though. One little tale that I'm proud of is that I joined the battalion shooting team for a competition once. Throughout my whole time in the army, I was always a pretty good shot. During basic training and at Catterick, I think I was usually in the top five in my platoon. And often the only guys who were better than me had previous shooting experience from hunting or living on a farm, something like that. Whereas I'd never shot anything more than a paintball gun before I joined the army. So I took part in this interregimental shooting competition. And while my team didn't win, I did score the highest on my team at that event. And funnily enough, my dad, who was in the paras, he was also a qualified marksman. So I'm very happy that I was able to uphold that standard. So finally, what did I learn from my time in the army? Well, you know, it's hard to explain in any clear black and white terms exactly what I learned, because obviously that experience changed me on a very fundamental level. I am absolutely not the same person I was before I joined the armed forces, and that is something I'll carry with me forever. But I do have a few little lessons that spring to mind. First off, Any idiot can be cold. That is a line I remember someone saying to me late at night, somewhere in the hills of Scotland, as I was very wet and very cold. 
It's easy to be lazy, not to change into warm or dry clothes. Sometimes you just think to yourself, "Now、nah, I'll be fine. I'll tough it out." But being freezing cold, especially when you're wet and when you're not moving for a long time, that can kill your soul, and at the very worst, it can take you down. I saw a lot of guys go down with hypothermia. Happens all the damn time in training. It's annoying when you have to dig down into the depths of your bergen, pull out a jumper which is in like three layers of sealed bags to keep everything waterproof, and then you have to take off your smock. And yeah, 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 it's annoying. But seriously, apply the effort. Warm yourself up when you can. It makes a huge difference. Another thing I learned is how to operate. On very little sleep, it's given me a lot of confidence for civilian life. When I have a busy evening and get to bed late, and then I have to get up early the next day, if I've just got like five hours of sleep or something, as a civilian, I think to myself, five hours. Oh man, that's not enough. Oh, I'm going to be so tired tomorrow morning. But when I remember back to when I was in the army, if I was able to get five hours sleep in the field. Five whole hours sleep. Oh man, geez, what a luxury! Five hours, man, what a treat! I'll be sleeping like a baby with five whole hours. From my experience, six to seven hours, and you're loving life. Five hours, not bad. Three to four hours, not great. I'm probably gonna be tired during the day, but I'll live. One or two hours. When I've just had one or two hours sleep, I'm basically just moving until I can sleep again. Any opportunity to sit down for long enough, and I'll catch a nap. I can struggle through that for a day or two, but by the fourth day of getting just a few hours sleep, I seriously need to get in a real bed and recover. That was really one of the hardest things about being in the army: being wet, cold, and so goddamn tired. If you're used to having like eight, nine hours sleep, man, the army is going to be a different world for you. One thing I really appreciated in the army, something I enjoyed a lot, was the extremely direct, factual, no-nonsense language you can expect from officers and NCOs. If someone asks you, "Is your weapon made ready?" you can't answer, "Oh,、uh, I think so." Not good enough. You need to know. When it comes to killing the enemy, you need to know, not think. Know that your weapon is charged and ready. Everything involved with operating as an infantry unit has to be based on certainty of action. You need to know what you need to do, where you need to be, by what time. There's no room for wishy-washy. Maybe I think, possibly, whenever you're ready. Here's your task. Get it done. Cut and dry. And that's just related in general to holding yourself to a certain standard. I remember once hearing a sergeant bull someone out and say something like. Doing your best isn't good enough. In civilian life, how often do you hear parents say to their kids, "So long as you do your best"? And yeah, of course, we don't want to grill our kids with way too much pressure. But in the army, that's not good enough. If your best is below the required standard to complete a task, and you fail that task, people could die. In war, even if you do everything exactly as you're supposed to, people still might die. So doing your best might not cut it. If your best isn't good enough, get better. Do what you need to do to get the task done. Something I've noticed since leaving the army in my travels, I've met other guys who are ex-military, Canadian, German, British, and somewhat surprisingly to me, a few of those guys who used to be in the army are an absolute state now, overweight. Untidy, generally a mess. I guess some people just really don't take on board the discipline they try to instill in you during your time in the forces. Of course, we're all different, and some people are just more into it than others. When I was in the army, I remember someone someone being referred to as army barmy when they tried a little too hard, which is ridiculous. Really, we should all be trying to apply ourselves as much as possible. But you know what it's like. Being a super enthusiastic tryhard is not cool. Anyway, it definitely changed me a lot for the better. I have no doubts about that. It also changed my teaching style as a personal trainer. At first, my only influence was from my Muay Thai gym, but after getting beasted by various staff for three years, I took that military style on board a lot more. 
And that's it. That's about all I've got to say on that for today. I hope you found that interesting, entertaining, a little trip down memory lane of my time in the British Army as a reservist. If you are thinking about joining the army, specifically the British Army, I would say do it, especially if you're young. Take on board everything they teach you. Really apply yourself. Don't just do everything with the mindset of trying to pass the minimum requirement. Exceed that. Excel at everything you do. You will learn so much. It will be difficult. You will be tired, cold. There will be times, probably many times, in which you absolutely hate it and you start asking yourself why you're doing it. But persevere. It is worth it. I remember times in both Scotland and Catterick vividly. I remember late at night, freezing cold on stag, thinking to myself, all right, that's it. Tomorrow morning, I'm quitting. I'm done with this. This sucks. I want out. But then the next day, you just get to work. Like, I'm not actually going to go up to one of the staff and tell him I want to quit, am I? And then eventually, when you get back to the barracks, you have a hot shower, get some food in you, have some sleep, and then you look back on it and laugh. That's actually something that's got me through a lot of hard times. Now, when I'm struggling with something, when I'm really suffering and having an awful time, I look to the person next to me, smile and say, you know what? One day we're going to look back on this and laugh. And without fail, that always gets a laugh in the present moment, despite the suffering. Good times. I feel as though I am speaking more directly to you now, you, the listener. As I have been producing this podcast for a while now, and many of you have been kind enough to contact me on Twitter, I have been enjoying connecting with you and hearing your thoughts. So now that I have begun to get to know a few of you, when I record these episodes, it doesn't feel like I'm talking to myself quite so much. But I am actually talking to you, the listener, because I know you're out there. I know who some of you are. I know my words will reach the ears of my brothers and sisters. So once again, as always, I'd like to thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I sincerely hope that my experience and some of the stories I've told you today have either taught you something new, given you some kind of fresh insight, or just been entertaining or interesting. We're in this together. We pay our knowledge forward. Next week, or whenever I get the next episode recorded, I know I've had a few weeks off. Thank you for your patience. Next, we'll be having some more guided meditation on the topic of cultivating silence. Until then, all of your likes, comments, shares, and reviews are greatly, greatly appreciated. Subscribe and follow me on Twitter at WayBudo if you haven't already. Until next time, keep doing what you're doing. Trust the process because those on the way become the way.